Does someone in your family have type 1 diabetes? These days, more and more people are answering yes. Next, find out about new research giving hope to families coping with type 1 diabetes. Good day, Southeast Wisconsin. I'm David Todd, your host for CTSI Discovery Radio here on WMSC. If this is the first time you're joining us for CTSI Discovery Radio, let me tell you what CTSI stands for. It is the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. And you're listening to the only radio program that brings together scientists from across the country and around Southeast Wisconsin to talk about improving community health and how we can do that better together. The eight institutions that make up the CTSI are the Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, the Medical College of Wisconsin, Children's Hospital, Freighter Hospital, the VA Medical Center, and Blood Center of Wisconsin. CTSI Discovery Radio is really the creation of Dr. Reza Shakir of the Medical College of Wisconsin. And like any true collaborator, Dr. Shakir took his idea to our next guest, to help him turn his vision into reality. That's Dr. Herman Vietz, president of the Milwaukee School of Engineering and a CTSI member organization. We went across campus to sit down with the president to talk about CTSI and collaboration. Dr. Vietz, as president of MSOE, what has having a CTSI meant for your faculty and students? Or how has it helped enhance their educational experience at the university? Well, it's clear that the objective of CTSI is, as it says, clinical translation. And to the uninformed, like myself, when we started, that certainly implies that we're going to take some research and maybe some advanced development and take it to the bedside. So that's the long-term objective. It's clear to us that uh, the medical college is doing a great job with Dr. Shakir leading that effort. Uh, However, they could use some help on a pragmatic basis from people who are engineers and scientists and nurses and uh, business people to translate what is done in the research labs to uh, a more useful application right there at the bedside, not just in the research lab. Because uh, I know that uh, MSOE has got a robust nursing program. Um, how has that been able to benefit or enhance the organization CTSI? Because eight organizations work together, not only yours, but also the Medical College, Frederick Hospital, Children's mm-hmm. Hospital. Mm-hmm. So it really kind of is a, a wonderful biomedical engineering enterprise in and of itself. Well, there are two levels, and at least maybe many others, on which that can be done. One is, of course, the R&D level, research and development. But the other one is on the personal level, which involves the question of how do medical students and nursing students get to learn to interact with one another before they bump into each other in a hospital. Uh, We have a program with the medical college now that uh, attempts to do just that. And it brings medical students into our nursing laboratories, which look very much like a hospital and look very much like the setting where they will be eventually. And it gives them a chance to kind of work side by side or get to know each other and get to know the the, uh, personalities involved. Because there are some pretty distinct personalities amongst uh, MDs and nurses and uh, people, technical people to begin with. So it's a great opportunity for them and it's in a no stress or at least low stress environment, which is one heck of a lot different from hospital setting. 
Dr. Veets, thank you so much for your support of CTSI and of Discovery Radio. It's my pleasure. So that's just what our CTSI is doing here in Southeast Wisconsin. But there are 62 CTSAs across the country. So we've reached out to another one in Texas, to Dr. Robert Toto from the University of Texas Southwestern. Good afternoon, Dr. Toto. Good afternoon. I wanted to call and ask you, as another um, principal investigator on a CTSA, um, what has the Clinical and Translational Science Award done for you and your community? Uh, what has it been able to afford um, you know, investigators, researchers, um, and people in the community in general uh, in Texas? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the CTSA, or Clinical and Translational Science Award uh, in Southwestern, has really had a major impact on our clinical and translational research environment. Uh, we've been able to, since we got the original award, to um, develop many highly successful programs in education and training, uh, pilot awards, um, biomedical informatics, statistics, population research, and some community health sciences. Uh, and uh, patient-oriented, uh, or patient-centered, rather, outcomes research, and those have all been established over the previous five years. And in the new application, which we submitted a year or so ago and, and received funding for, uh, our vision is to really accelerate the translation of new discoveries into clinical practice, um, essentially by leveraging our scientific strengths here at Southwestern. And there are many across the spectrum of translational research. And there are four areas that our um, CTSA is focused on. One is in target identification and validation. And, uh, and this is a program in translation that's designed to organize, uh, enhance, and increase the core facilities that we have, including state-of-the-art technologies uh, making them available to our research community, mm -hmm. uh, assisting people in statistical analysis of large data sets, which is becoming increasingly important, not only from the standpoint of, say, genetics and proteomics, but large data sets of patient populations with a variety of diseases, uh, including diabetes, uh, for example. Right. Um, uh, we're also uh, focusing on uh, another program in translation that we call Discovery in Humans, and here we're incorporating highly phenotyped human cohorts into what, we're, what we call the home of our center, our, our Clinical Translational Science Award, the Center for Translational Medicine at UT Southwestern. And the, this uh, includes the Dallas Heart Study uh, population, which is a um, a random sample of the Dallas-Fort Worth um, population that was established in 2000. And then we've had a, a wave one and a wave two of that, and those people underwent extensive phenotyping. Blood was connected, collected for genetics. And as a consequence of that um, work, we've actually been able to make some discoveries in terms of new phenotypes. We've used that um, population-based um, science in, in collaboration with the laboratory to make major discoveries in cardiovascular and fatty liver disease, specifically um, the target identification of PCSK9, a protein that regulates LDL cholesterol metabolism. Um, that was discovered in the, uh, the, the function of that molecule was discovered here in the laboratory in the Dallas uh, of, of Helen Hobbs and the 
and her colleagues in the Dallas Heart Study population along with um, some other large patient populations were used to validate the fact that mutations in that protein result in either high uh, levels of cholesterol or low levels of cholesterol and uh, associate with uh, cardiovascular mortality and morbidity risk. I mean, those are just a few examples of the kind of impact the CTSA has had on promoting the activities that will have a positive impact on the, the, the people who live in our, our community. Dr. Toto, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. To get a broader perspective of how type 1 diabetes is affecting families across the nation, we spoke with the director of the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases, the Division of Diabetes Endocrinology and Metabolic Diseases, Dr. Judith Fradkin. Good afternoon. There's been an alarming rate uh, with the increase of type 1 diabetes in children. Can you give us a little bit more insight on why that might be happening? So we know that diabetes occurs due to a mixture of genetic risk factors and environmental triggers. And of course, we know that people's genes haven't changed, so we believe that something has changed in the environment. And we're doing a very major um, multinational study to try to figure out what that might be. So for example, if we found out that there were an infectious agent such as a virus, we might be able to develop a vaccine. If we found out that there were some dietary changes that were contributing, we might be able to help people change their diet. But meanwhile, at the same time that we're trying to identify what might be changing in the environment that's causing the risk of type 1 diabetes to increase, and it has increased by almost 30% over the past decade, we're also looking at things that we might do based on what we know now to try to prevent type 1 diabetes in people at high risk. So for that study, we actually have a, an international consortium, the Type 1 Diabetes Trial Net, that's looking for people who are on the road to developing Type 1 diabetes but haven't yet developed it. So we're looking for people who are relatives of people with Type 1 diabetes. And we're offering free screening um, to see whether people have autoimmunity, which is the first step toward the development of type 1 diabetes. And this can be done um, in about 200 medical centers across the country. But for people who don't live near one of those medical centers, they can also go online and download a, an application and actually have a kit sent to them that they can take to a local lab to find out whether if whether their child has autoimmunity. So this is something that's available to people who have type 1 diabetes in their family. And we know that people who find out that they do have autoimmunity are more likely to catch their type 1 diabetes early before they can develop life-threatening hyperglycemia. Gotcha. And it really seems like there's, a, there's a, a, a vast amount of research going on in this field. There is. And we've seen some really exciting progress recently for people with type 1 diabetes um, where we're trying to develop what we call an artificial pancreas. And that is a device that continuously measures their blood sugar is linked to a computer in a cell phone that then calculates the dose of insulin that they need and can deliver that via a pump. So we're hoping that this kind of device can really make it easier for people who have this disease to manage their diabetes and to get better control because we know that good control of blood sugar can prevent the development of complications of diabetes. Wow, that's quite a high-tech intervention, isn't it? 
it's it's really very exciting. We call it the bionic pancreas. That's great. Dr. Fredkin, thank you so much for your insight on uh, what's happening, not only um, across our country, but across the world. And it's a great uh, lead into what's happening right here in Wisconsin. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure to talk with you. To see how our elected officials are dealing with type 1 diabetes right here in Milwaukee, we sat down with Alderman Michael Murphy, President of Milwaukee's Common Council, to talk about community health. Alderman Murphy, thank you for taking some time to sit down with us today and talk about um, community and public health. One of the big important things that we're talking about today is diabetes and type 1 diabetes and the prevalence of it and the increase of it in the populations. Can you tell me if there's anything specifically that the city is doing to address um, community health or public health, whether it be specifically to diabetes or in general? Well, we do work with uh, the, many of the uh, clinics around our community and uh, the hospitals. So our commissioner of health, uh, Bevan Baker, has in the past um, held uh, events where we encourage citizens to get tested to see if they do have diabetes. We have a pretty extensive wellness program for our own employees, but clearly Milwaukee is really the epicenter of uh, diabetes problems throughout the United States, but we are one of the worst locations, unfortunately, for uh, people becoming diabetic. And clearly, um, we do try to encourage our citizens um, to eat healthier. And um, for example, the mayor has a walk 100 miles um, you know, this summer in trying to encourage residents to go out and exercise and eat properly. But for many cases, it, it sometimes it's very difficult for people in parts of our city where we have a really chronic problem of um, diabetes is where there's a, a lot of food deserts. What I mean by that, there isn't opportunities for them to get fresh fruits and vegetables at a reasonable cost as it is to get a bag of Doritos. How much, uh, how important is collaboration um, to, uh, to the city and to uh, its residents? Well, it's critical because with shrinking resources, uh, there's little and, and fewer opportunities where one party can do everything. So in working in collaboration with um, healthcare providers, for example, we've had vans out in front of City Hall in other parts of our city where we encourage people to go in and get tested confidentially to see whether or not they're a precursor to being diabetic and what they can do to stop that from occurring. Or if they are, they, they can seek and get proper medical care through their primary physician. Um, obviously, a lot of people um, aren't aware of the consequences of the, the problems that are associated with diabetes in terms of impact on your health, whether it be on your internal organs, on your vision, on just the quality of life that over time can have a really detrimental impact. So we feel um, if you are not looking at this from just a, um, a, a good public policy, in but really a cost-benefit, trying to prevent people to become diabetics saves us a huge amount of money um, from our health care premiums, but in terms of improving people's life and quality of life and, and on the moral argument, uh, I think it's all incumbent upon all of us to try and um, stop something from happening versus after it's happening. My experience in health care and other problems in, in the city is prevention is always a much cheaper and a much more cost-effective way of resolving issues. Alderman Murphy, thank you for your time today. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. At the top of the show, I mentioned to you we'd be talking about type 1 diabetes as a family management issue. Our next guests are doing a psychosocial study observing families in their home to see how new interventions can help. Dr. Cogers, can you tell me a little bit in layman's terms about your study and about the research you're doing with type 1 diabetes in the family? 
So type 1 diabetes is typically diagnosed in children ages 10 to 12, but we're seeing increasingly more children diagnosed at younger ages. So we're interested in kids around the preschool age or early elementary school age, so ages 4 to 6. And we're interested in how they and their families are managing type 1 diabetes. So it's quite a complicated illness to manage. There's a lot of tasks that families need to do every day. They need to check kids' blood sugar and watch what they're eating and exercising and adjust insulin. So it takes a lot of planning and organization and family communication to make all that work effectively. So we're interested in how families are doing that and we're going to go to families' homes, spend about two hours with them, work individually with the child, work individually with the parents, and then watch the family interact and learn how each of those different players, actors, um, contribute to managing type 1 diabetes. So this study is really uh, kind of a, a psychosocial study, non-invasive, where it's just uh, the participants are just uh, reporting what they're doing and you're being, they're being observed, correct? Yes, correct. Um, the kids are going to be doing different activities. Um, some of them are things like they do in school. Some are a little bit different. They'll be playing with some puppets. They'll be answering questions. The parents will be doing some different kinds of activities, um, but also answering some questionnaires. And then we'll watch the family interact together as well. Dr. Hemelfinger, let me ask you, how did this collaboration um, come to fruition? Um, where, how did the two of you find each other? Obviously, you work uh, with the same kind of constituencies, uh, younger children. Um, Tell me a little bit more about that. Dr. Calgers and I share in uh, an interest in trying to understand how do children and adults develop the ability to um, manage their own diseases and manage whatever uh, their processes are that not just disease related but just general level of functioning. Um, so we've been working together for years now trying to develop some research collaborations that combine our interests. While she is very interested in young child family and diabetes, I've been very interested in the brain development of the systems that allow you to be able to develop and self-manage and, and that's called executive functioning. So we uh, have collaborated to be able to assess that in a standardized way with the children and the parents in this study. Dr. Calgers, um, tell me uh, what the next step after the pilot uh, research is. Where do you hope that this research takes um, the study? Uh, what do you hope ultimately um, you'll find out or be able to affect uh, in an intervention? There's lots of possibilities. The research in the, this area is really growing and developing. So anything we find out will be adding to this growing body of literature. Um, we certainly would like to find out what is working well for families and what isn't, so that that gives us some opportunities to intervene and help them. So this study will provide us with some um, foundational knowledge about what works for families and what doesn't. So hopefully down the line we can develop interventions that target specific families, either children's skills or parents' skills to help them more effectively manage the diabetes. Dr. Heffelfinger, uh, you mentioned earlier about executive function and seeing you know, uh, when, when children are ready to manage their own disease. Um, is there a certain age that we know that, that children are more competent to do it? And can you tell me a little bit more about the scale between, you know, uh, the kindergarten age kids and the 10-year-olds. You know, where in that uh, spectrum uh, do kids start to understand what they're, what they're going through and how to manage it? It's a great question. And uh, to begin with, I think the important piece is also to consider the parents' level of ability to care and uh, manage a disease process. So um, the first thing in a family is the parent learning how to manage. And then 
because if that's not being done well and the parent doesn't have very good executive functioning skills, that makes it much more difficult for the whole household to be managing that process. In a typical family where the parent is able to take on the ability to manage uh, accurately and, um, and consistently, the child begins by just learning to cooperate with the process and not being a behavioral nightmare <laughs> to try to get them to understand why they need to be doing what they need to be doing. So in someone who's five or six years of age, really the only thing you'd expect is that they cooperate and learn to build into their routine the ability to manage it. By the time they're 10, more and more they should be able to start be able to recognize uh, what they need to be doing, but still not till they're probably young teenagers should they actually be responsible for managing their disease. So this is exciting uh, research and information that we'll be able to share. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Children living with type 1 diabetes have more challenges outside of the home, for instance, at school. So we went to the American Diabetes Association to talk to their program manager about the special needs of children outside of the home. Thank you for coming today. Well, thank you for having us, Susan. I appreciate it. Absolutely. As the program manager for the American Diabetes Association, what kind of uh, protection or advocacy do parents and children living with type 1 diabetes need? Uh, they need to make sure that they protect their rights in the school setting as well as in the work setting for the parents. And those are the things that we really point out to parents and the children's children when they are diagnosed with type 1. We want to make sure that they understand their rights when it comes to school care, when it comes to education, when it comes to taking care of your children and having to leave work sometimes. Well, what specific issues have you, um, have you uh, asked for um, advocacy and our support on, whether it's in the Madison State Capitol or in the nation's capital? Uh, we've been very, very lucky here in the state of Wisconsin, I have to say. We have a Safe at School initiative already within the state. The state does a wonderful job giving resources and templates and things like that to the parents when it comes to taking your children to school. You need to be aware of your individual health care plan. You need to be aware of your 504 plan. You need to be aware of your uh, other forms and just things that you need to think about when your child is in the school setting. On a national level, some states aren't quite so lucky, so we certainly lend our support and uh, any type of guidance or just uh, helping with advocacy when it comes to states that haven't initiated a Safe at School program yet to make sure that students are able to go to the school that they want to go to and that they're cared for when they're at school. Um, and, and their needs at school, are, are those uh, more around, you know, being able to have medication at school, being able to have proper diets, things like that? Those are two very important things. Uh, first and foremost, I would say it's being able to take care of your diabetes as a whole when you're at school. That means you need to be able to test your blood sugar when and where you need to be able to test your blood sugar. Uh, testing in the classroom is really important so that children don't miss valuable instruction time. It means that if the child has a low or a high blood sugar before a test, whether it be standardized or a final exam that they are able to excuse themselves until their blood sugar is at an appropriate level for them to think clearly and make sure that they're not penalized for that. Those are things I've never thought of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are uh, a lot of, you know, making sure that they're able to go on field trips with proper care, making sure that they're able to go out for extracurricular activities and that there's someone there who's trained 
to take care of the diabetes while the child is learning and growing and developing as every other child does. Susan, thank you for the time and thank you for the information. I know I learned something. I hope our listeners did too. I hope so too. Thank you. And if anyone ever has any questions, please feel free to call the office. Call me. I'm more than happy to help. You bet. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, this is the part of our program where we play translational trivia and to, to have a little fun with us. We've contacted Molly Fay from uh, The Morning Blend and today's TMJ4. Hello, Molly. Hey, David. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good to talk to you. Are you ready to play some translational trivia? I think so. All right. Well, we're going to be playing on behalf of one of our Facebook friends, Todd Stolpa of Oak Creek. All right, Todd. I'll give it my best. <laughs> He'll be playing for a CTSI prize pack, which includes a notebook, a pen, a coaster, and an 8-gig flash drive. Are you ready for okay. your first question? I think so. It's multiple choice, right? You betcha. And these are all um, around the subject of diabetes, type 1 diabetes. All right, your Sounds first good. question is a multiple-choice question. All right, Molly, which of the following numbers would be considered a good blood sugar level? Which of the following numbers would be considered a good blood sugar level? A, 24, B, 50, C, 200, or D, 120? Hmm. Um... Uh, wow, I know I want it to be low, but you probably don't want it to be too low. Um, I'm going to say 50. Mm, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 120 is where you want Oh, your, really? 120? Okay. Is where you want your blood sugar to be. Okay. Right. Well, you still have got two more questions here to, to win for our um, uh, Facebook friend, Todd Stolpa. All right, let's go okay. on to our next one. It is called Science or Fiction. You ready, okay. for that? you ready for that one? Yes, I think so. Okay. Diabetes is often called juvenile diabetes. A person may be diagnosed with juvenile diabetes at any age. Science or Fiction? Diabetes? Science. Excellent. That's correct. Yay. All right. All right, now here's the... Here's the the big tiebreaker. Are you ready for this one? This is a fill in the Okay, and this, this is fill in the blank, okay. Yep, and I think that you, I think you should be able to get this one. Okay. All right, question three. Diabetes is a disease in which the body cannot produce or absorb blank. Insulin. Yay! Woohoo! There you go, Molly. Two out of three. Two out of three. And our I heard my friend Katrina Cravey get three out of three right, though. She was the only one so far, but I think she's... Wow! I know. But she did, she did ask a friend the last fill-in-the-blank question. She did, she did. <laughs> All right, well, Miss Faye, I appreciate you dialing in and joining us for Translational Trivia here on CTSI Discovery Radio. And you have a great day, and we'll see you on The Morning Blend. Sounds great, David. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. CTSI Discovery Radio is produced by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The show is engineered by Tom Crawford, with special guest to Sandy Everett's, and Drs. Herman Vietz, Carlos De La Pena, and Reza Shakir. And so... Become yourself Because the past
is just a goodbye Teach your children well Their father's hell did slowly go by And feed them on your dreams The one they picked The one you know by Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh Look at them and sigh 